Healthy individuals work on their shit, and we all have shit. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I'm a recovering shit show, and I also just went on a date with probably the creepiest mofo I've ever come across. Now, I have had plenty of bad dates and plenty of douchebags, but I don't think that I have ever had this level of creep. If you are a 90 Day Fiance fan, think David from David and Lana. If you are a Love After Lockup fan, think Stan. Uh, He said on his profile that he was 45. I think he was more like 65. And oh, it was just, it was horrible, guys. He kept trying to like hold my hand and touch my leg. And I really just wish you could have all seen the facial expressions that I I was making because I was recoiling from a hot flame. And the real icing on the cake was when I was leaving and I gave him a hug and he whispered into my ear, when do I get to see you again? Oh, it was really rough, guys. Really, really, really rough. And thank the good Lord that I did not give Uh, this guy, my number, we only communicated through the app. Typically, I always exchange numbers, but thank God this guy does not have my number. Hallelujah. And then last week I had another date. Uh, The guy was definitely shorter than me. His, I think his profile said he was six foot. We're talking more like 5'10". And he... He was dressed like Danny Zuko from Greece. This isn't a diss. I'm just trying to paint the picture for you guys. So, you know, a white wife beater, leather jacket, hair slicked back. Uh, and, and he also had three doubles of whiskey within an hour. So clearly this guy does not have a drinking problem. So then when the bill came, uh, he asked me, if I would split it. And I did. And the only reason that I was willing to split that bill was because I was never going to see this person ever again. So I didn't think it was, you know, fair for him to pay for my Diet Coke. (laughs) If it had been a guy that I wanted to go uh, on a second date with, I would never offer to split shit. So uh, I will just keep you up to date on on my dating life. You know, it is rough out there, ladies and gentlemen, real rough. So today I am diving deep with Kevin Peterson. He is a therapist. He has a practice called the Chronic Hope Institute, which focuses solely on helping families navigate addiction and recovery. He is a drunk that doesn't drink anymore. And he is an adult child and similar to me. He was rather oblivious to the severity that his childhood had on him due to the fact that things looked nice and pretty from the outside. So we are diving deep into dysfunctional family systems. So what in the hell qualifies as a dysfunctional family? We've talked about how what makes a family dysfunctional is not the dysfunction itself, but rather how the dysfunction is handled. So I actually found a definition for a dysfunctional family. According to the American Psychological Association, they 
define a dysfunctional family as a family in which relationships or communication are impaired and members are unable to attain closeness and self-expression. A family is considered dysfunctional if they meet these criteria on a regular basis as a standard part of their life together. So number one, poor communication. Dysfunctional families are unable to listen to one another, so individual members often feel misunderstood or like their voices aren't heard. In addition, communication in dysfunctional families is disjointed rather than direct. Family members talk about each other to other members of the family, but don't confront each other directly. This creates passive-aggressive behavior, tension, and mistrust. Uh, Next, we have perfectionism. In a dysfunctional family, one or more adults may be perfectionists. They have very high expectations for children or other family members and don't accept failure. Perfectionism creates a steady source of negative emotion that causes individuals to constantly feel inadequate. Uh, Number three, lack of empathy. One of the hallmarks of a dysfunctional family is lack of empathy. Parents do not show unconditional love. Rather than attempting to understand a child's feelings and point of view, a dysfunctional parent might rely on anger, making the child feel guilty or or demeaned. Parents lack the ability to emotionally tune into their kids, causing children to internalize negative feelings. Number four, control. In a dysfunctional family structure, one or more parents often focus on controlling their children. They might pit children against one another and make them compete for affection or constantly compare them. Other important elements of control are dependence or lack of privacy. Research found that people who reported their parents had intruded on their privacy in childhood have low scores in surveys of happiness and general well-being. And last but not least, excessive criticism. Criticism and other verbal abuse are particularly difficult for children to overcome. Parents in a dysfunctional family often criticize a child's looks, intelligence, value, or abilities. Some criticism might be direct, while other forms are more subtle and relayed in the form of teasing or put-downs. So if any of those were the norm in your home, if that was uh, business as usual... You probably grew up in a dysfunctional family. I'm hoping that you had already figured that out by now, but let me tell you, you grew up in a dysfunctional family, okay? I'm pretty damn sure that that is the case. Uh, That's enough out of me. I do just want to give a heads up that my mic was not working for this interview, so it's not the best of quality on my end. Uh, It's not nails on a chalkboard, but it's also not winning any sound awards, so I apologize. But first, of course... Let's talk about all the ways that you can show your appreciation for me for creating this podcast. Number one, you can join the Patreon. This is where I host weekly support groups. This is also where you just say, hey, Andrea, here's $5 a month. Thank you for all the wonderful things that you do. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. You can tell any single person that you run into in the course of your daily life about the podcast. And of course, you can give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Thank you much. All right, well, it is my pleasure to introduce a fast friend, uh, Kevin Peterson. He is a LIFNIT, which is a licensed family marriage therapist. He is 
is the author of, of Chronic Hope. What do you want to, what Chronic Hope Institute? Is that also what, what we're calling this whole jam? Well, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I, uh, hi. I started, I, hi, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's so good to meet you. You're like my new best friend. Yeah. Um, and uh, which, you know, is given the, the world that we come from, no matter, it's not a shock, right? Um, so I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in Colorado and Florida. I live in Jacksonville, Florida. I grew up in Palo Alto, California. I lived in Denver for 25 years. Um, and then I started the Chronic Hope Institute. A couple of years ago, I started my private practice in 2014. And I ended up writing a couple of books under the Chronic Hope title. The first one's called Parenting the Addicted Child. And the second one's called Families in Addiction. Um, and on my website is chronichope.us, and, and you can get both books for free uh, on a PDF download there. And what the significance of that to our conversation, I think, is that the second book, Families and Addiction, is really the story of my journey from growing up in an addicted home, mm -hmm. being an adult child, mm -hmm. starting you know, immediately hitting my own addiction, getting sober, and then becoming a licensed marriage and family therapist and really engaging and carrying the message to other families of here, let me help you. Let me help you get off the roller coaster. You, you have a book called Parenting the Addicted uh, Child. You should have one um, for the adult child audience called Parenting the Addicted Parent. <laughs> well, that's the second one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's parent families and addiction. Parent when you're a child. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Parenting the addicted adult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Parenting the addicted parent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No kidding. So you. would you consider yourself an adult child? Well, that's a great question, as a matter of fact. So let me let me tell you a little story. Please. Uh, I got I got sober on May 5th, 1991. Uh, and I've been going to AA uh, ever since in my recovery and still super duper strong and dig in. That's my gig. Um, but I'll tell you two things that I believe about AA. One, um, it does an amazing job of showing you how to get sober and stay sober. Mm -hmm. And then it also teaches you how to behave like an adult. And that's all it's supposed to do. And it mm -hmm. does a great job. It does not teach you how to be in relationships. It does not teach you how to resolve your childhood trauma. It does not teach you how to address your mental health issues. It's not designed to. So... What, uh, what I found after uh, going to Al-Anon for about 10 years was that I needed more uh -huh. um, and I needed something different. And so I ended up walking into uh, a meeting of uh, the adult children of alcoholics and reading the laundry list. And I was like, oh, these yeah. are my people. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a spiritual experience every time you read the laundry list for the first time. So what is it that brought you into Al-Anon? So I grew up in Palo Alto, California. I was born at Stanford University. You're actually speaking to a fourth generation California native. You oh, know, you poor thing. I know, exactly. <laughs> that, that's, that qualifies me for trauma all by exactly. itself. <laughs> I grew up, uh, I grew up, I had a wonderful family. My dad was super duper successful in the Silicon Valley world in the 70s selling envelopes. Um, Selling envelopes. What kind of yeah. envelopes? Yeah. Well, you know what? You know what really made it for him? And and I don't know if you're old enough to remember this. Andy, Probably not. But, <laughs> um, my dad uh, sold uh, back in the 60s, the 50s and the 60s uh, and the 70s. Every company had an entire room full of 
stationery mm -hmm. and business envelopes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that was his business and he was super successful. And then a guy walked into his office and said, for those of you that are watching, I'm not, um, this is only audio, only audio. So a guy walked into his office, one of our neighbors uh, walked into his office and said, Hey, Walt. And he held up this thing and he said, this is a floppy disk mm. and it goes into an envelope, mm. but notice how it, it tears the envelope apart. And mm. what's happening is the disks are losing their data and our customers are pissed and I need help with that. Can you help us? I'm not kidding when I say this to you. A week before, the guys from DuPont were in my dad's office and they, held, and they were like, hey, Walt, this is Tyvek. Can, can you sell Tyvek in your business? What is Tyvek? Tyvek is a plastic paper. Okay. It's, so you know, like the FedEx packages yeah. and, and the, and the uh, USPS packages that are plasticky? Yeah, that's Tyvek. That's that you can't rip. Okay, yeah. so it's like a form. It's like an unrippable plastic. Yeah, that they and so and from the seventies to the nineties, if you bought a piece of software that had a Tyvek envelope, my dad sold it, wow. and and so that was really crazy and successful. So on the outside, we lived in this big, beautiful two million dollar home. My sister and I went to private colleges, um, and on the inside, it was a total shit show. My mom was a prescription drug addict. Mm -hmm. and uh suffered what, from benzos yeah everything painkillers benzos. i i don't know because i don't remember did you ever that. do quaaludes i feel like gypped that i never got an opportunity to try them yeah no i didn't uh i did not oh, unfortunately um i i feel the same way by the way because my friend when i got into aa in 91 my buddies would talk about it right you know mm -hmm. and i was like oh so not fair i know exactly <laughs> um, <laughs> So I grew up in that family that was super chaotic, super crisis oriented. There was always some sort of thing going on that we all had to run around and you know fix. Uh, and that was my mom. And, and so here's the telltale sign, right? When my parents sold that house in 2002, um, a lot of my childhood friends said, you know, I've never been inside your home. And I was like, yeah, there's no fucking way you're coming in my home. You're not seeing, the, you're not, I'm not gonna expose you to the monster. You know, and because we and it was funny because my sister said to me one day she was uh, all her girlfriends got together for their 50th birthdays. And she was like, so what do you guys remember about my mom? And they were like, well, she was always in her pajamas and mm -hmm. she was her eyes were always glassy and she was kind of slurred her words. Mm -hmm. And and so that's what we grew up with on, on the outside. Everything was perfect and pristine and beautiful on the inside. Total insanity. What's like your first memory as it relates to your mother's addiction? Or what is a particular memory that stands out to you? So I can tell you it was Christmas 1999. And we were, uh, my sister and I and my, her husband, we were all living in Colorado. And, but my parents were still in, in Palo Alto. And we came home uh, for Christmas. And it was just... The Christmas day, like in the morning, opening presents and everything was just a total shit show. Um, my uh, my mom had my mom had asked me she, a while back, hey, do you like the smell of patchouli? I'm like, no, I think it's god awful. It's just terrible. And she and one of the things she gave me was a C's candy box full of like raw patchouli. And I was like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? You know, I hate this shit. And then um, my dad had <laughs> said, hey, uh, 
I, I had a job where I was traveling for work and he was like, I'll, uh, I, I have good connections. I'll get you a really nice piece of travel luggage. And I'm like, oh, that sounds great, dad. Thanks a lot. And so he's, he sent me a catalog and I picked one out. And um, that morning for Christmas, right, he comes walking in with the one I picked out in one hand and a totally different one in the other hand. And he hands the one I picked out to my brother-in-law mm. and hands me the other one. I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know, what, what, why, why, I don't, well, what are you doing? And, and it just, you know, then the war, you know, the, uh, you're so ungrateful. I can't believe a little spoiled brat you are and the whole thing. Um, and, and then, so here, but here's the piece. Here's what happened, right? My mom took off and disappeared. And we had 35 people coming over in two hours for Christmas dinner. She just disappeared and there wasn't a thing prepared the house wasn't cleaned, nothing. And so my sister and I just kicked into turbo mode and started handling everything. And within an hour, an hour and a half, had everything pushed into the right direction. Everything was flowing. And my brother-in-law was just standing there watching us like, what the hell is this? And, I, and we were like, this is how we grew up. They fight, all hell breaks loose. The kids got to solve the problem. So we're problem mm -hmm. solvers. Mm -hmm. so we just that's what we learned how to do and that's that's a mild one you know I mean but that's the first one that comes to my mind and when I was here's one when I was 14 my parents were remodeling the house and um, they had it being painted and um, my mom rented another house to move out of the house because the paint fumes were too much for her and they smelled bad and it was toxic but only she stayed in the other house of course it was okay for us to mm -hmm. deal with the toxic paint fumes, but you know, and I, mean, I look back on it now and I realize what was probably happening is that they were probably fighting. Mm -hmm. And, and I just, but just, you know, every Christmas party, every birthday party, every family event we would drive to, we were, we weren't 15 minutes late. We were two, three, four hours late. Mm -hmm. And, and we've had that reputation within the extended family of like, well, they might show up and they might not, who knows, mm -hmm. you know, and almost always as time progressed, my sister or I would go as my dad's date, not as my mom wouldn't show up. Mm -hmm. He'd stay home. Yeah. What, at what age were you aware that your mom had a drug problem? Um, I think I look back on it now, probably like 13, 14 in high school, because uh -huh. I mean, I would come home for lunch from high school and she'd be in bed. Uh-huh. And well, did you I mean, realize it was pills? Yeah. You know why? Because she said, I have migraines. Okay. And, and I have to take my medication. Uh -huh. uh, and, and that was, we just, but see, there was the cover story, right? Yeah. It was, it wasn't a bad thing. Yeah. Mom had migraines. Yeah. And, and so mom got to get high and get stoned and be stoned all day. And did your dad ever have a conversation with you about it? Like prior to leaving for college? No, not at all. Um, the only time it was ever brought up, my mom died in 2014. Um, and at her, after her services in that year, 2015, um, my dad looked at me and said, you know, I think your mom probably had a drug problem, but I was okay with that because my dad's mom was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So my dad, all he was doing was carrying on the tradition. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. was the reality of our lives. And, um, yeah, yeah. And, it, it, I mean, that, that's just... That's just how we grew up. We just took it for granted that this was normal. We thought this was normal. Mm -hmm. Well, and how could you know anything different? 
Well, you obviously right? knew that things weren't normal. If if you weren't having your friends over to your place, there's obviously a part of you that knows that it's not normal. Yeah, I mean, at the time, right? I think I was just more like, I'm just being independent. I'm gonna. I mean, right. I, I you know, I went to school. I swam and played water polo, and then I got a job. So I spent as much time out of the house as humanly possible. Yeah. You know, and and tried to gain as much independence as humanly possible. Cause it was just, it was just insanity. And you know, the thing was my dad, when my mom would act up and all the shit would start, my dad would start looking for someone to blame. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, and he went straight to me, you know, oldest son, well, there's only two of us, son, daughter, mm-hmm. but I mean, just, you know, it was always my fault, no matter what, mm-hmm. it was always my fault. And, and, you know, what's really funny is that one time I looked at my sister and I said, this is the dynamic of my household. It's always my fault. And she's like, you know, for the longest time, I really thought you were just being all victim-y and whining and crying. Mm-hmm. And then one day, I think it was that same Christmas, I got blamed for the weather, literally blamed for the weather. And I looked at her, I said, do you see what I'm talking about? This is the shit I grew up with. And, and, you know, look, I was never beaten. I was never sexually abused. I mean, I want to be clear. I, I, when I, I know people have had it worse than me, but the dynamic of my family household was so crazy, chaotic, insane, and dramatic that, that I thought that was normal. You know, I thought, I thought those, those things were normal. And then when I got sober in 1991, and started looking back at the family and I was like, oh, so it turns out I'm not the crazy one, mm-hmm. you know? No, I can relate. And that's my big message on here is like, it's all relative, right? It's, I just Literally. think that there's so many people that think, oh, because I was not physically or sexually abused, like how fucked up could I truly be? And the truth is like pretty fu- damn fucked up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, God damn, you know? I mean, although I'll tell you, it makes me a great therapist. <laughs> exactly. I'm really, and and when, I, uh, when I went back to graduate school, I was, I was 43 years old. I was 16 years sober. I was doing really well in business America and making plenty of bread. I'd just gotten divorced a couple of years ago from a marriage that I never should have gotten involved in in the first place, you know? I mean- I don't know about you, but my pattern, <laughs> my pattern is damsels in distress. The bigger the crisis, the bigger my Superman cape is, you know, my big white horse and I'm going to solve all the problems. No, and- I only have a track record of just like very emotionally well people that I've dated, you know. <laughs> You're the <Yeah>. one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I just had this meme that was really, I'll text it to you. It was really funny. It's this guy and this girl, and they're making out and, and she's like, say it again. And he's like, uh, I'm in therapy. <laughs> and she's like, that's it. <laughs> Please do. I want to share that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I just, it, I, I went back to grad. Well, that was another eye opener for me going back to graduate school at Regis in Denver and, you know, becoming studying marriage and family systems. And, and, you know, my advisors would start talking to me and I would start explaining to them my situation where I come from and my environment. And they were like, Oh, okay. Yeah. And I'll tell you something else at eight years sober. And I went into my first Al-Anon meeting. Mm-hmm. I ran away from those people as fast as I could. Mm-hmm. I was just like, Oh no, 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 no. This is way too close to the truth. You know, Mm. I can't, I can't, I wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to take a long, hard look at, I was, 
I'm Mr. Sober guy. I'm Mr. Big Book AA. That should solve everything. Mm, uh -huh, uh -huh. And the truth is it doesn't. Yeah. You know? And I think that there's a lot of people, I think that there's a lot of people with long-term sobriety that that is their message. And that, yeah. that produced a lot of shame in me because yeah. I was like, I had seven years, nine years. What the hell is wrong with me? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I'm, and literally I've had, I, I mean, I've, I've heard all the horror stories of people being told by their sponsors, you can't take medication, you can't go to mm -hmm. therapy, this is all wrong. And then, you know, I got, and then they know what I do for a living, right? And then they call me, um, they're like, I'm suicidal, I'm going to kill myself. I can't, I can't come down from my anxiety. I'm like, go to go the to ER. meeting. No, I'm kidding. No, yeah, right. <laughs> like, go to three meetings. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, read the third step prayer. Yeah, exactly. like, call a suffering alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna, and and uh, I'm like, no, just you know, go to the ER, get stabilized, call your doctor, let's get back on track. And so, you know, that uh, ugh, that that ugh, that's that just makes me so angry when I think about it because it's we're doing such a huge disservice. And here's the thing, right? When they started AA in the 30s, I mean, I gotta be on it. My my personal impression is they had no idea where they were going and what they were doing. They were just like, screw it. We're going to try this and it's going to work and we're going to get better. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, at no point did they sit down and be like, oh, what should we do with the people that are physically abused? Mm -hmm. What should we do mm -hmm. with the people that are sexually abused? What should we do with that had childhood abuse? You know, they, they have no idea. What do we do with PTSD war victims? Well, you know, just stay sober. Oh, okay. Let's take away their medication you know, and, and then wonder why they start to freak because yeah. you know, it's like, no, no. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I'm Mr. AA. It is the centerpiece of my life without it. Nothing happens, mm -hmm. but I, but that you have to accept the reality that AA is not the sun and the moon, you know, it's, it's, it's the beginning. It's where it starts. And then you go from there. And exactly. And I feel grateful for that. I feel, I love AA. I love my AA people. But I got to tell you, my weekly, uh, you know, adult child's meeting um, is where it's at. Oh, man. I mean, I just said this the other day in the meeting. You know, it's like, you know, you go into a regular meeting, any kind of 12 step recovery meeting, and it kind of starts light. You know, it's like and then it might take a little bit of a dive deep. Right. Mm -hmm. The ACA meetings start deep and they go down. Yeah, you know? I know. It's like, <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, OK, here we go. <laughs> no, I know. No, I feel really grateful that I had subsequent pain that forced me to do this work. Um, I want to talk about your addiction, but first I want to talk about one thing that sparked my mind to ask yeah. you this question. So you talked about like being a scapegoat in your family. So when you're working one-on-one -on -one with individuals, I thought that we could talk about, so we have the hero child, we have the lost child, the mascot and a scapegoat. Talk about, let's look at each one of those and what manifests in adulthood as a result of being put in those roles. So let's and start I, with the, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You go. I was going to say, let's start with the lost child. So, so this I, is like I, the isolated one keeps to themselves, the recluse. I call him the ostrich head in the sand. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's fine. You know? And, um, you know, those folks, Oh, I, God bless those folks. I love them. They try so hard to, they, they just, you know, 
it's too much for them. It's overwhelming. And they're just overpowered by that. You know, what mm-hmm. happens to them as adults, you know, they tend to get into these relationships where the other, where their partner is super dominant and super, sometimes super abusive mm-hmm. and, and very engaged and overpowering. And they, you know, that's because they're not, they're at, so at an early age, you know, way you know, in your childhood and, you know, like I'm talking about like from zero to six, okay. Mm-hmm. The, the impression that was set for them was that, you know, it's, you're, you're better off just shutting your mouth and hiding in the corner and not saying a goddamn thing, because if you do, you know, a world of troubles come in your way. Mm-hmm. And so they tend to develop that pattern. And, and as adults, they tend to be very much just like, you know, but that's now what we're also talking about is they also become very passive aggressive. So they mm-hmm. have learned to just shut their mouth and get along. But then as soon as the person turns their back or leaves the room, they're like, well, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want anyway, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that creates this giant conflict within the structure of either work or personal relationships or friendships, because they don't know how to speak up for themselves in a healthy way. They know how to be super passive aggressive and super codependent, and then maybe super aggressive, like they break out and they're like, I'm fuck this, I'm going after it. And it's mm-hmm. like, whoa, 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 you know? there's a, there's a way to express yourself without, you know, going to war, you know, Mm -hmm. that's definitely the lost child right there. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to the hero child. (sighs) That's me. (laughs) You know, hero child turned scapegoat. Well, yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, and I think by the way, right. Well, yeah. And I think everybody plays different roles, right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, um, yeah, I was definitely started off as the hero child. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, it was one of those, I mean, I grew up in Palo Alto, which was a blessing and a curse, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, I was immediately identified as talented and gifted, like 65% of the rest of the population there. Mm-hmm. And then all these and high IQ and all these expectations start getting placed on you, you know, and none of them really came true. I was an average student in high school mm-hmm. at a ridiculously hard high school, public high school. And then, you know, I went to college and I, I mean, the addiction took over. So I flunked out pretty darn quickly um, and things kind of fell apart fast. But, you know, the hero child just gets a ton of pressure and the world put on their shoulders. And so as they go forward as an adult, they are used to constantly taking the pressure and, and I'll fix it. I'll solve it. I'll take care of it. Me, I can handle everything I can. And then what happens is they break because they can't. And then mm-hmm. they get blamed for not doing everything right. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, see, I told you, you know, and, and uh, so that's the hero child. And then I, let's just roll right into the scapegoat is the scapegoat is the one that's conveniently, they tend to be mouthy, right. And speak up and draw that negative attention to themselves. And, and so everything's their fault, mm-hmm. you know, everything's their fault. Oh my, you know, you, 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 and, and it's the family always likes to have one person that they can drop the bomb on. Mm-hmm. And just say, it's all you, you're the reasons everything's screwed up. This is a little indicative of our society, but that's another conversation. And um, mm-hmm. I, by the way, a couple of years ago, I had a really great conversation with a guy you need to interview named Dr. Michael Barnes. Um, he's at the Foundry in Steamboat Springs. He's one of the preeminent um, scholars in this country on families, addiction, and trauma. Mm-hmm. And he's a Michael Barnes? Yeah, I'll put you, I'll hook you up. Okay. Um, but he and I talked about this two years ago. And I was like, hey, um, are you noticing in the midst of this? This is like in the first three or four months of the COVID situation. I said, are you noticing the parallels of mom and dad are fighting in the country, right? 
and they're fighting this invisible concept that nobody can see or touch or feel and they're and they're at each other's throats and they're trying to kill each other and what happens when mom and dad fight nobody's nurturing and taking care of the children so what's happening with the kids they're breaking into the archetypes right there's the hero child there's the scapegoat there's the ostrich there's fight there's flight there's you know freeze and there's also flirt you know and and the and there's also the caretaker right and then mm-hmm. i mean and that's what the population was was doing they were well, they had to self nurture because they couldn't rely on the people in charge to nurture them and mm-hmm. he, you know what he you know what he threw at me and you're going to love this he's like and he's about 10 15 years old 10 well, 10 15 years older than me and he's like you're totally right kevin but here's the only thing i would add he goes i grew up as a child in the 60s and at that time, it was Vietnam on TV every night. We'd all get our TV dinners and watch the, you know, the news, and they would have body counts. Mm. And what was happening two years ago? Body counts uh-huh. and body bags. And he's like, mm. that was terrifying to us. Mm. And he's, he's like, people of my generation, of my age, are talking about, oh, my God, I can't believe we're doing this again. You know what I'm saying? And, That's um, fascinating. Yeah. And so I see that that the whole country has been sort of thrown through this family trauma environment for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, so when you're talking about the archetypes, that's the archetypes that I look at is, yeah, we have the hero, we have the scapegoat, we have the, um, what I call the ostrich. Um, we have the guy, you know, got, I'm going to fight, you know, we're, we're taking over the Capitol, you know, because that's going to make me feel better you know so what about uh, the mascot oh the mascot you know the sweet little child that does everything and says you know oh you're such a good kid and thank god i have you and actually you know it's funny is my wife will tell you that she was she has there's five in her family she's the youngest of five Mm -hmm. and that she was the mascot because as early as a child she got rewarded for being such a good little doer a good little fixer you know oh i can always count on you to solve the problem i can Mm -hmm. always count on you to take care of everything oh you're so one so mascot hero tend to be very close Mm -hmm. you know i mean mascot slash like the joker like the one we call that flirt now by the way it's someone who's like hey look at me isn't it cute i'm my funny you know and and, uh (laughs) you know because that because then i never heard that flirt i never heard that yeah we want to break up the tension in the family you know and and uh so yeah we definitely see that we definitely see that yeah okay so let's talk about your um your love affair with drugs and alcohol Uh, when did you you when did you take when did you get drunk for the first time or get stoned for the first time i was 13 years old and i was in the boy scouts of america and i was i was on a weekend trip and uh the older boys were allowed to camp a little further away from the rest of the pack Mm-hmm. And there was, they were hooting and hollering and something was going on. And I had to get in on that shit. Yes, and, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I got in and I, they were drinking and they were smoking pot. And I was just like, oh, Hell fucking where yeah. has this been? <laughs> you know, at 13, you know, mm-hmm. I was just, I mean, it was that sense of relief. I mean, I hear people be like, I don't even like it. I'm like, oh my God, I loved it. I was just like, because mm-hmm. it slowed my brain down. Uh-huh. You know, it just, it brought everything back down when I was just like, oh, thank God, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, I would tell you that actually, you know, I always, when I speak about this, I always tell people, so like from age 13 to 18, I kind of drank and used drugs like a normal person, you know, and when you normal, say that like a normal 14 year old, when you say that to people outside of recovery, they're like, what? 
when you say that to people in recovery, they're like, oh yeah, no, I get it. I mean, there's like, I always think, I mean, for me, at least there was this time when I, I think I was in charge and controlling mm-hmm. it. My life wasn't falling apart, you know? Mm-hmm. And that started when I went to college when I was 18. It just, I mean, I just, it, it was- all so I, all. Yeah, I just, the wheels came off like that. I just, I mean, when I, I mean, you look at my transcripts from USC, the first six years, I mean, they start at like B's and then it's B's and C's, then it's C's and C's and D's and then D's and then shit I've never seen before. You know, it's like, and you know, know, like the the professors are like, we don't even know who he is. (laughs) I can't grade him. He's never here. (laughs) (laughs) So then when did you start, when did you stop going to, and then you just dropped out completely. Right. But you didn't tell your parents. Right. Yeah, no, that was like 1987. Yeah, 1986, 87. I went for a year, then I spent a year. I took a year off. I lived in Spain. I worked on a farm in Spain for six months, which oh. was I never should have come back. Although, How did that although happen? Uh, I met this wonderful couple uh, going down the Colorado River with my dad in the summer of 1983. There were like 20 of us on this guided tour, and they lived. There was an American woman and an Englishman. And they had met in Rhodesia, um, now Zimbabwe. And um, obviously, you know, they were, they lost the war, so they had to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, she owned, she was from a very, very wealthy family. And she owned this beautiful farm outside of Granada, Spain. And they were like, hey, we need help plowing the land. And we have a tractor, but we need, we need help from someone who's educated. And Where I was like, grow? barley, wheat, and, and no, barley, wheat, and garbanzo beans. Garbanzo beans. <laughs> How do you like yeah. the beans? What does that look like? <laughs> My job was to drive the tractor. Okay. Uh, so I drove a tractor guys. every day. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Um, but I also totaled their car. You know, because sure they you love know, that. well, it terrified them because they thought they were going to have to send me home in a box. You know, and. Uh, and then I went back to school in 1984, and it was just—I mean, it just 84, 85. I mean, just. You know, and then and then eventually the university was like, "Look, you can't register because you're on academic probation. You owe us ten thousand dollars, and the student dean of student life is looking for you." You know, and I was just like, "Peace." And uh, but I just kept mm-hmm. taking the money from mom and dad to facilitate my lifestyle, and then you know telling them, uh, and then they wanted to know if I was going to graduate, and I was like, "Sure." In May. <laughs> and I ordered the cap and gown, and I ordered the announcements. And I sent out all the information, got all the gifts and money, and I faked my graduation from college on May 9th, 1988. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, so then tell, talk about, you shared the story with me before, but talk about the car ride that you had with your dad. Oh, yeah. So 1990, I'm at a family uh, uh, reunion in San Luis Obispo. Um, and, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm, working, uh, I'm working at Il Fernayo. And Max's Opera Cafe, um, bartending and selling weed, you know, because that's what you did back then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, and uh, and my, you know, dad had given me a BMW. I sold it. I mean, I was just, you know, living that super chaotic lifestyle. And my dad, at the end of this uh, family reunion, said, "Hey, uh, let's drive home together." It's like a four-hour ride back to Palo Alto. And I was like, "Okay, sure." And you know, he's like, "Why don't you drive?" I'm like, "Okay." And he said, five minutes into the, the drive, it's like, so, Kevin, you're my only son and I love you. 
but I don't believe a word out of your mouth. I think you're a liar, a cheat, and a thief. I think you're a drug addict and alcoholic. I'm fairly confident you didn't graduate from college. Um, and I think that you are just a complete disaster. And until you're willing to change your lifestyle and change who you are and what you are, you're not part of the family anymore. And I wasn't living at home, but you know, I was very integrated with my family. And, and then he's like, so your mom, your sister and I have made it, taken a vote and you're out. And, they, and this time, I'd heard this before, this time they held their ground. Mm-hmm. And so for after six weeks of that, uh, that was in August of 1990. So after six weeks of that, um, my, uh, I, I did what all tough guy alcoholics do. I called mom, you know, and started crying. Mom, dad, nobody loves me. This is not fair. I can't, you know what you people did to me? Growing up in Palo Alto. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, uh, and they were waiting for that. And, and they said, okay, tell you what, how about you start seeing a therapist with your father on a weekly basis? And I was like, therapist, no problem. I've been seeing those clowns for years. And uh, so I started seeing a therapist with my dad in January of 1991. And that's the man that actually called me out and told me to go to AA. Mm-hmm. And that's the quickie version, right? But, but uh, so my family, my screwed up, dysfunctional addicted family saved my life if that makes sense i feel like kind of the same for me yeah 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 but nobody else got help in the family except for me (laughs) well i mean i i continually tried to come back into the family and say hey i think i'm not the only one and they were like you need to shut up you know and uh so I actually sort of staged my own mini intervention on my mom uh, about five mm. years before she died. And she was like, I have prescriptions. I see a doctor. I see a therapist. I'm fine. Mm. And, and my dad you, told Was me, your sister or dad involved? No, I just cornered her and started talking to her. And then my, uh, my dad told me to mind my own business that I didn't know what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I was 18 years sober. Um, and in grad school. Uh, and my sister was like, I told you, I told you they wouldn't respond to it. I told you. And, and so. Did um, she, so, did she ever have any substance abuse issues? My sister? No, uh-huh. no, 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 no. Um, and then my mom died in 2014 and, uh, and she had a you know, uh, massive heart attacks and went to the ICU. And this is a great story. Cause when I got there, um, by the way, um, it was my turn to go. That's the, I mean, when you when when things get to that stage, that's what ends up happening. It becomes your you're on you're on call. Mm-hmm. And so I went to uh, the hospital, and um, the uh, doctor came out of the ICU, and he's like, "I'm so sorry." I'm like, "Why? What's going on?" And he's like, "Well, your mom's had three heart attacks," and mm-hmm. and you're. I said, "Oh, okay." And he goes, "You don't seem very phased by this." I'm like. I, I mean, nothing personal, but I, I was kind of expecting, you know, and he's like, your dad's in the waiting room bawling, saying this mm. is such a surprise. He's like, I don't understand that because your mom is on every single drug I could give her at the <laughs> max dose. I can't give her anything. Her body's shutting down. And I'm like, oh yeah, dude, it's okay. I get it. And I, I'm like, look, this is who I am. This is what I do. And he was like, okay now it all makes sense Mm. so 
kind of dedicated my life to trying to break that family system and break that stigma of, you know, we don't talk about it, you know, and then, and then they die. And then a year later, they're like, well, you know, maybe, and I'm like, oh my God, come on guys. You know, let's, let's wake up and see what's really going on here. So what sort of conversations have you had with your sister just on, like, has she, in, feel free to not talk about it if you don't want to, um, but has she okay. had to like, what, like, how is, how has um, her, her childhood experience manifested in her life? Well, I'll tell you, it's something that my sister always said, and this is really, this is, I mean, she got a double dose, right? She got my mom and me. And, and um, yeah. she's like, here's the thing I remember. It was always about you, no matter oh, what. It was uh -huh. good, bad, and different. It was always about you. You always drew all the attention. And, and, and I, I was like, well, wow. Yeah, I get it. I told, I mean, that, I, that's awful. I'm so sorry. You know, that makes perfect sense. And, and then, you know, it was also very disruptive for her. So my sister has two girls that are now in college, but at that point, my parents had moved to Colorado, right? We all lived in a short area with each other or close to each other. And it became very difficult for my sister to allow her daughters to hang out with my mom because my mom would just be sitting in bed, you know, eating bonbons, literally, um, you know, high as a kite on drugs, watching TV, you know, and my sister leads a super, super, super healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's on purpose. I mean, you know, it's the counteraction to it. Right. And so she was very much like, you know, I don't want my daughters seeing that as this is what an adult woman looks like. Mm. And, and, um, you know, I think the other thing too that happened, Andrea, is that in like January of 2015, after my mom died and we, uh, we had the services, um, I was so angry and so upset and so overwhelmed. And I ended up um, talking to my wife about it. And she's like, you know, you're so angry. You're so, I mean, you're just so angry. And I'm like, she's like, you know, Kevin, your mom didn't wake up every morning saying, I think I'll be a drug addict and have mental health issues. You know, she lost the battle mm -hmm. and she gave up and, 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 you know, and, and that gave me a lot of empathy and understanding of, you know, I, I had to get to that space where I could be like, well, that was my mom's journey. And I love my mother and I love my dad died last year. And I love my dad, but their journey was not what I wanted, you know? Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So, what what was something like when you discovered like ACA, the laundry list, what was kind of a, a shocking kind of revelation that you had as far as your childhood or a way in which um, it impacted you that you didn't really see until far into your sobriety? Well, you know, I had uh, spent years working in restaurants, which is very much crisis management. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's just like, you know, right now, right now, right now, right now. And then I went into the graduate school and I, the jobs that I got in the therapy world initially were crisis jobs, uh -huh, you know, uh -huh. and, and, and I got, I was really good at it. Like the higher, the fire, the cooler I got, I was like, uh -huh. I got this is no problem. We became the addicted to excitement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it became second nature, you uh -huh. know, and then, um, you know, but like the traditional, you know, let's sit and talk about your feelings therapy. I'm like, I don't have time for that. You know, and, and so that really, that's the stuff that in the ACA that really cracked me open was realizing that the stuff that I had been given as survival skills as a child 
and, and I was getting massive rewards for as an adult was actually dysfunctional and toxic, uh -huh. you know, and I had to learn how to stop doing those things. I mean, it's part of my practice of who I am in business and my therapy is to teach, to, to identify, I help people, you know, alleviate the crisis, but then we got to dig in and change the behavior, uh -huh. you know? Uh -huh. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's talk now about, you know, what you do. <laughs> we do a lot okay. of things. All right. But in particular, like helping families. Yeah. So what, what does somebody's out there, what is a listener out there who has, um, let's say they have a child that is suffering from addiction. What do they need to hear right now? They need to hear that they need to go to my website, <laughs> chronichope.us click the download the free books and read my books honestly that's all they hear because mm -hmm. i want them to understand that that is all i do is work with that family i don't care if the kid is 16 26 36 or he's your husband or your or she's your wife or whatever an adult it doesn't matter to me i deal with families that are struggling with active addiction in their home mm -hmm. and i help them create a plan of how to address them. So I call it plan A. Plan A is we're going to address drugs and alcohol, work in school and behavior at home. And we're going to give them boundaries. There's going to be an accountability function and there's going to be rewards and consequences. And I coach people through that process. And we're going to try it for 30 days. And if it goes well and we get things back on track, lovely. If we don't, then we go to plan B, which is intervention and treatment. I teach them how to do that as well. Mm -hmm. So let's take let's take my family and my story as an example so you know my mom's an alcoholic my parents fight all the time i start acting out yeah. uh i start going to therapy all these different things but what wasn't being shared was like the reality of the situation you know yeah uh so how do you how yes. do you address that? How do you, how do you yeah. figure out if this is not just like an identified patient situation? Well, here's the thing. Addiction and codependency are like peanut butter and jelly, you mm -hmm. know, or pizza and beer, you know, mm -hmm. you can't have one without the other. And, and, and they go together, you know, and uh, one of the things that, um, and, and so the, one of the first questions I always ask people is, Hey, what's the history of your family, like generationally of addiction and mental health? And they all say the same thing, literally the same thing. Oh, there is none. It's just Andrea mm -hmm. only, you know, and it's like, okay, I used to argue and fight. Now I'm like, uh-huh, sure. And we just keep talking, we keep talking, and we keep talking. And they start telling me more and more stories of their family. And then they're like, oh, 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 okay. Now I get it. What I want to do is help them identify their personal individual behavior patterns surrounding the addict. And what I always tell them is you're not responsible for their addiction, but you are responsible for how you respond to it uh -huh. and how you go about dealing with it and how you address it. That's the big issue is, is getting them to understand because you can't make somebody, you can't, you can't, you know, you can't control someone and dictate whether or not they use. What you can do is like what my, my family did with me. You can say, you know what? You can choose that drug and alcohol lifestyle, but you're going to choose it without us. Uh -huh, uh -huh. We love you, but you're not going to be part of the game. 
And, and when you want to get sober, we will do everything we can to help you. And we will welcome you back into the family. But if you're going to choose drugs and alcohol, you're choosing not to be part of us. Uh-huh. And that's really where I, that's, I, it sounds simple and easy. There's a process. I walk them through the process and engage with them on that. And, and, you know, that's really it, it, the first, the first phase is triaging the problem and putting the fire out. Right. Uh-huh. So we can get into the history in the second phase. Yeah. So another thing I get a lot of comments on, um, like people, parents who are now realizing that they're adult children mm-hmm. um, and they're like, how do I, how do I prevent this from, you know, fucking up my kid? Or I'm just, I'm just now realizing that I'm an adult child. Uh, my kids are teenagers or whatever. Like, what do I do? And so what I always say is like, what you do is you work on your shit. You know, like that's, it's preventing, that's right. yeah, it's, it's cleaning up your own mess. Um, cause I, I really believe it's right. It's like attraction rather than promotion in a way. Yeah. Well, um, so well, what do you say when, if a, you know, if an adult, a newly discovered adult child yep. is beating themselves up over perhaps the impact that they've already had to their children and yeah. what do they do to pivot? So the phrase I always use is happy families come from happy individuals or healthy families come from healthy individuals, healthy individuals work on their shit. Everybody has shit, Uh you know, and then on the other side of the t-shirt, it's going to say, of course, we're going to talk about your childhood, you know, and and (laughs) merch (laughs) (laughs) one day, one day. Uh, But that's really the truth, you know, because I mean, everyone, I I mean, literally, I, I, you know, what I'll get is I'll get people that'll come to me and be like, oh, I fully acknowledge my parents were drug addicts and alcoholics. And I was raised in a traumatic, chaotic, oh my God, this is ridiculous, but I'm good. You know, Mm -hmm. that was a long time ago and I'm all good. And I'm like, really? Then how come you keep spending your entire life trying to fix this person? You know, why, why are you constantly, why, why is your entire world designed around how to fix a 22 year old? You know, and, and why have you married someone that's just like your father? I mean, you, you got to start layering in because, you know, like we get taught in the 12 step world is you can't carry, you can't give something you don't have. Right. And, and so uh, my thing is you got to work on your own stuff. I mean, we can triage the, the problem, put the fire out right now, but then, and when we send that person off to treatment, then the family's got to do their own in-home treatment program. Because if we bring that person home into that same environment, it's a total disaster. Mm-hmm. And and that's the hard part. Um, so what about and let's just say it's this isn't like a a teenager or something, but let's you know a common experience that adult children have. I mean, family recovery is great, right? Yeah. It would be wonderful if if everybody could get in, but like the reality of the situation is that's typically not the norm. Yep. So one common experience that a lot of adult children have, like me included, is when you, you know, when you start breaking away from that family system and you start doing your shit and healing, the rest of the system retaliates. Yep. So do you have any, um, and I think that that could cause people to not want to do the work, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So what are your thoughts, suggestions, insights on that? Well, that was my experience, you know, when I got sober and I started really digging in and changing the way I lived, you know, it really impacted my family and fam. And, and then when I started going to initially, when I first started going to Al-Anon in 2009, it really started changing the way I engaged with my family because I started having boundaries 
And I stopped accepting unacceptable behavior, you know, and that pissed them off, right? Because I was no longer going to, like when my mom would call to gossip about my sister, I would say, you know what, I'm not going to have this conversation with you. You know, I'm not going to do this. And when my dad would start his stuff, I'm like, yeah, dad, I'm not doing that. You know, or he would try to, you know, bully me or come on, oh, come over the top with me emotionally. And, and I was just like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. You're not using guilt and, and, and shame to try to manipulate my behavior. And then they were like, what, 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 what? And so what <laughs> I ended up having to do was actually put some distance between me and them. And, 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 you know, the other triangle that I came from, right, is that instead of my mom and dad talking to me, they would talk to my sister and talk trash to my sister about me and dump on her about me and my behavior. And so that would get that would overwhelm her. That would become too much for her. And so there was this weird, you know, Cartman triangle. Right. And and, and uh, so what I had to do was break that and be like, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not I'm not having these conversations. And, and so I actually had to put uh -huh. some fairly significant boundaries up around my family. Uh -huh. and keep my distance from them so yeah and i think uh, at least my experience is like it feels super fucking uncomfortable at first um yep. and not natural um but it does yep. get a whole hell of a lot easier and becomes a little bit more second nature the more that you do it you know well, and it, it, I mean, it, it took time and they definitely were upset with me and they didn't like it. But, you know, here's the thing I had to say is, I mean, it was kind of like that, that what goes around comes around. It's like, these are the people that set boundaries with me and forced me to deal with my shit. And then I had to turn around and be like, Hey, look, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep being, I can't keep, I was like walking back into a burning building. Yeah. And, and I had to be like, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't, I can't be uh -huh. in this chaos. My first sponsor in Al-Anon, who was this wonderful, amazing woman who ended up following me into graduate school and getting a, 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 a master's in counseling, she said, you know, you can still deal with your family, but you can do it at 20 minutes at a time. You, you, you don't have to spend, you don't have to drive into their family's house and spend the entire day with them. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do that. You can go for 20 minutes and then leave. Mm -hmm which was mm -hmm. stupid because I had to drive 40 minutes to get there and <laughs> 20 minutes. Then I drive, but, but you know what, when I started setting those boundaries and valuing myself and taking care of me, I mm -hmm. felt better. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt good about who I was and what I was and it just started working better. So, you know, what I tell people when you, that's a great question, by the way, because that's definitely what's going to happen is when, when you start to recover the system, what does the family system do? Oh no, 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 attack, no, no. Attack, attack, attack. Yeah. You're not, that's, we're not having that, you know, it's, it's really about then turning back to that system and saying, you know, I love you, but I'm going to love you from a distance. Uh -huh. And, and then that's why I'm a big advocate of the, of the becoming part of that community, the 12 step community, because those people became my family. Uh -huh. And so did the people I was in graduate school with, because they were all fighting a lot of the same battles. Uh -huh. And so that became, I was fortunate to have replacement families. I still love my family. I still was, but I still had people that would be like, no, we love you no matter what. It's okay. You know? So, I mean, to the day my dad died and I love my dad, he would still look at me and he's like, so how's business? I'm like, oh, it's really great. He's like, I just can't believe people pay money to talk to you. You know? And I'm like, thanks dad. You know, thanks bro. Love you. <laughs> It's just like, not only that, dad, I've written two books. I have five people that work for me and I have two offices, but Hey, you know, whatever. But I mean, literally that's it. I mean, it, it, to think you're going to get an 89 year old man to change his behavior is ridiculous. You know? So yeah, what I had to do. Yeah. Well, right. What I had to do was limit my exposure to that. 
and, and just and just surround myself with people that were kind and loving and supportive and be like okay that's cool you know so well this has been fucking amazing oh me too i think it's great i think we should do this every week I would, you definitely <laughs> will be back so yeah. i will include all your shit in the show notes so what yeah. is it chronicope.us yes 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 yeah. yes anything yeah. else anything else you want to push um real honestly i mean we have a facebook page we have the chronic hope institute facebook page uh and and we have a instagram and a youtube and a podcast that you're going to be on and all that social media but honestly go to the website download the books they're free you know and and uh and so are the so are the podcasts so are the videos it's all free i mean my gig is, yeah let me help you i want to help i want to help i want to help and and, you know, I mean, one of the things I'll tell you for, as an insider in the addiction industry, everyone in the addiction industry has the exact same attitude. If we can get the family engaged, we can solve the problem. But the family just doesn't want to, you know, because I mean, I understand why they're burnt out. They're like, are you kidding? This kid's destroyed our lives, you know? Mm. And, and, and so, but that really, I mean, one of the most important things I think is for the family to just really take a long, hard look at themselves. So, yeah. Well, thank you, sir. It's my pleasure. I'm so honored. Thank you so much for your time. Some more of these outside the door. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that could help you on your own journey. As always, I know that you did. Thank you again to Kevin. Uh, please go check out his shit and download his free books. Um, next week, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this interview. So I'm talking to Morgan Anderson. She is a relationship coach. She has a podcast called Let's Get Vulnerable. But I got her to go even more vulnerable and share a story that she hasn't even shared about on her own podcast. So we got the juice there. Uh, and I will see you guys then. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.